Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. In this episode, we'll be talking about personal boundaries. Personal boundaries. Most of us have them. Spaces where we feel comfortable or uncomfortable, respected or disrespected. Whether or not we enforce them, how or to what extent varies between people, but it's common experience to find ourselves in situations with others where we don't want to be. There are material boundaries, boundaries we place around our possessions. There are physical boundaries that impact things like how close we can stand to a stranger before we feel uncomfortable. This would include sexual boundaries, the types of things we're comfortable doing, or how we like to be touched. There are even emotional boundaries that define our independence or dependence on others. Do we take responsibility for things in other people's lives that they should ultimately be responsible for? Do we violate other people's boundaries, or do we attempt to show consideration? Unfortunately, these boundaries aren't visible, which makes communication key. But expressing when a boundary has been violated isn't easy because it's not a script we're often taught. I think, as a society, we're getting better at recognizing some boundaries, but there's a lot left on the table. I'm glad that current sex ed courses are including conversations around consent, for example. But we still don't commonly teach children how to deal with boundary breaches. We teach children to share their toys. We tell them this is polite. But when a child grabs a toy from another, we merely scold and tell the child not to do that. We stress, you need to ask if you can have that doll from Sally. Don't just grab it from her. That's not nice. But we rarely address the child who has had the toy snatched from them to talk about etiquette around how to assert themselves in a situation where someone else is not following the polite protocols. How do we respond when someone says a mean or disrespectful thing? How do we tell someone we aren't interested in being friends? What do we do or say if someone butts in front of us in line? How far do we take it if they don't extend a common courtesy? Does it escalate to harsh words? Do we go to blows? Do we ignore it altogether? After we grow up, these very real situations for which we have no scripts continue, and how we handle them has a lot to do with our past experiences our upbringing, our culture, and ourselves. Are we passive, aggressive, assertive? And what do we do when attempts to rectify things don't work? It's an area of social interaction that causes a lot of disagreement. But in the end, we all have a right to boundaries, to express those boundaries, and to defend them, to whatever extent the law allows. Hopefully, situations where any of us have to worry about legal boundaries will be rare, but at some point in our lives, we will be confronted with situations where we have to make decisions about what boundaries we have, and whether or not we wish to defend them, and to what degree. Since there are no scripts, and we're off the map, it's going to be about trying to discover the best ways to navigate considering everyone involved, and teasing out what's fair and reasonable in response. I found myself in a situation like this recently. I'm not sure whether I handled it in the best way possible, but I'm going to talk about what I did and why, and how it made me feel. As always, I expect some people will relate. Some will think I went too soft. Others may view my response as unnecessarily harsh. 
For better or for worse, it's how I handled it. Our reactions tell us about ourselves, and I hope that sharing this story will present an opportunity for all of us to consider the context of boundaries, our own and those of others. So here it is, my story about personal boundaries. After my first year or so in Austin, I met John. John was a slightly younger, accomplished professional who was coping with depression and a history of abuse by someone outside his immediate family. He was an amazing cook, an amateur writer and musician, and very well read in European literature and philosophy. Most of my post-college fiction reading amounted to books that John had recommended for us to discuss. The books were good, and John's insights were interesting. We dated for about eight months until John decided he wanted to see other people. His dating background was sparse, and so it was understandable he was interested in expanding his experience. We both went off to do our separate things, and life went on. Every now and then we'd touch base and get together as friends or with a group of friends. As the years went on, the relationship fell into a close friendship, where we watched one another's lives grow and change. John tried social media on and off. He made a bicycle road trip where he wanted to update it now and then on Facebook. He made a few attempts to move his life to New York City, which he loved. He managed to live there for a while at one point, but ended up coming back to Austin. I became more involved in secular activism and eventually got married. My husband David and John got along well. They were extremely different personalities, but still found an affinity for one another, often over their love of the Dallas Cowboys or a good game of pool. John actively dated as well, and tried many new relationships. I got to hear about them over wine and dinners. He would come to my house sometimes for holidays, and some years we'd see each other more, or sometimes less. Things went on well for a good two decades. As is often the case with some forms of mental illness, though, John would sometimes self-medicate with alcohol. He'd go through phases where the drinking increased or decreased. Sometimes he'd stop drinking altogether for long periods. It wasn't an issue for me because when he was in my company, he was usually within a reasonable range of buzz, able to carry on a good conversation, and not a concern behind the wheel. But I knew a few stories that I'd heard that included blackouts and injuries. I just had never seen it firsthand. John knew I was there if he ever needed anything, and so was David for that matter. He wasn't afraid to call on us, but I never inserted myself into his life, and I didn't judge. After a while, though, there was a noticeable uptick in the drinking, and it finally spilled over into an uncomfortable situation at my house during a social dinner with friends. The evening was going well, but John wouldn't stop drinking, and eventually became sloppy, making the other guests uncomfortable. I'd never had to intervene before with John's drinking. He'd always comported himself well in my home, and I found myself in that zone where a hostess has the job to figure out what to resolve in a situation that's gotten well out of hand. Fortunately, he gave us no trouble handing over his car keys. We drove him home, and David followed in John's car. We got him home and saw him to his door. The next time I talked to him, I asked, Did you get home all right? He said he did, and I knew he had no recollection of the events. I explained to him what had actually happened, and I told him that that could never happen again in my house. 
As the drinking continued to escalate, I began to get occasional drunk calls. Again, this was not anything I'd ever had to deal with from John. As it began to creep into my life, my don't-judge attitude started to crumble. I don't recall how much time passed, but eventually I got a call from John telling me he'd been to a doctor and things weren't good. The years of excessive drinking were taking a physical toll, and the prognosis was grim. I didn't feel self-righteous. I know that substance abuse and addiction are difficult things, and I was sorry that in his case it had escalated to dangerous levels. I know I've had trouble letting go of things in my own life, and I was simply fortunate that none of them were things that could kill me. So I was glad he was seeing a doctor who was making short-term and long-term recommendations. Meanwhile, he sold his home in town and moved back to live with his parents for support. Having met his parents before, I felt better knowing he'd be with good people through a rough time. The treatment was up and down. Much of what helped was sticking to a particular diet and staying away from alcohol. When John stuck to it, things would start to look better. But after a bit, he'd crash and start drinking again. It was a vicious situation, bleak and stressful, which motivated the self-medicating, which then only made things worse. He would call me now and then to discuss the situation, which was fine. I was interested to hear how he was doing. He started writing again and wanted to share some of that as well, which was also interesting. I read some of his draft manuscript. So John would call now and then, catch me up, ask me how my life was going. We'd chat for a few hours, and then I'd hear from him next time he called, sometime later. It was manageable. I'm not sure what triggered it, but after a while, the time between calls became shorter and shorter until I was getting calls every week that would go on for hours. Additionally, John's always been a night owl while I'm a morning person. He always used to tease me about it. So it was annoying when he began calling later in the evenings at times that didn't work for me, 10.30 at night or 2.30 in the morning, weekends, weekdays, it didn't seem to matter. I recall waking up to one call that I ignored and went back to bed. 30 minutes later, it was ringing again. I started turning off my phone when I'd go to bed. Another issue I had was that he was calling me on my cell phone. I carry a pay-as-you-go plan, mainly for emergencies or folks I rarely speak to. I certainly didn't set it up with the intention of having two-hour conversations every week. Finally, though, the content of the calls was also varied. Sometimes they were cordial. Sometimes they began cordial, but deteriorated as I could hear him getting drunk on the other end of the line. A few times I got calls that started out drunk and just got more disrespectful. Since these patterns were new, I brushed it off as a phase that would resolve itself. Whatever was going on would calm down after a bit, and things would go back to normal. But whatever was happening, it wasn't sustainable. As an introvert, it was too much for me. I wanted to be there for my friend, I wanted to be supportive, but it was coming at a cost. I had to address it. So next time we talked, I spoke to him about the phone plan. I explained that his calls were costing me money, and it would be better if he could call me on FaceTime or Skype. I worked with him to set it up on Skype, and I thought at least the financial aspect would resolve. I explained that Skype doesn't come through to my iPad automatically, so he should call or text and set up a time to Skype, and we could work it out that way. I also explained that I couldn't do two-hour calls that started at 10 o'clock at night. When he said goodbye, he added, Talk to you again next week. My response was intuitive, not orchestrated. Next week? There was silence. I continued. I'm not going to have anything to talk about in a week. My life just doesn't move that fast. 
He laughed. Okay, then two weeks. I told him two weeks wouldn't work for me either. Then he said, how about you call me then? That sounded perfect. But don't wait too long, he added, or I'll think you don't love me. It was settled. We had set up Skype so I wouldn't be charged for the phone calls. We had addressed the late night calling, and I could control the distance between calls at a rate that didn't make me want to not pick up my phone anymore. It was a good plan, except the execution failed. After telling me I could set the pace of the calls, it wasn't two weeks before I was getting calls on Skype without letting me know beforehand, so I wouldn't see the notifications until a day or two later when I opened my iPad. He'd start calling my cell as well when he didn't get the response on Skype. Both devices showed odd late night or early morning hours. The last time I spoke to John, he called me. I told him we could talk on Skype, and we switched over. It was later than I liked, and the version of the call was the begin cordial but deteriorate as he becomes drunk. He had asked me about something, and I could hear room noises as I was answering. After a minute or two, I stopped and called his name, but there was no answer. I could hear him in the room doing things, but he wasn't on the call. I waited a few minutes, trying to get his attention, until I gave up. I ended the call and sent him a text on Skype saying I was logging out, since he was no longer part of the conversation. I'd explained my boundaries, and none of them were being respected. He'd called me after saying he'd wait for me to call. He'd called me at a late hour, and he'd called me on my cell expecting a chat. I had to remind him to move it to Skype. And after blowing through every single boundary I'd expressed, he then got drunk and left me hanging on the call. That was it. I was done. Much like the dinner at my house, I don't believe John actually recalled what happened on that call. If he had, he'd have called me back as soon as he woke up the next day and realized what happened but it took about two days. I think he found my Skype message and understood what he'd done. I got a flurry of late and early calls two days later on my cell and on Skype. He left a voicemail trying to claim it was a technology problem. It was an obvious lie. I could hear his end of the call. If he'd lost my audio, I'd have heard him calling, something like, Hello, Tracy, are you there? There was something worse to me about the lie. I would have felt more respected if I'd heard the truth from him. Don't get me wrong, I know people don't like to own their own actions when shame is involved, but there's something that feels additionally disrespectful to me about a lie in this situation. I wasn't looking for an apology. I just wanted him to admit what he'd done, to own his actions and take responsibility. By blaming the technology, there's no accountability. I understand it helps a person dodge feelings of shame and guilt that sometimes come with stepping up, but it also eliminates any possibility of correcting the problem going forward. If the problem is a Skype glitch, then there's nothing to be done for it. If the problem is someone got drunk and bailed on a call, leaving their good friend hanging, boundaries can be put into place to fix that. Rules like no drinking before or during calls. In the situation I was in, however, it was unlikely that additional rules would help, considering the rules already in place weren't being respected. I thought it was the last time I'd hear from John, but about two weeks later he included me in a group text to his friends. It was announcing a new phone number. I was the only person he called out specifically. He said he'd be calling soon. I interpreted it as glossing over what had happened, 
an attempt to begin the association again under a pretext that there was no problem to resolve or situation to discuss. I wasn't interested. I did, though, feel somewhat comforted to see his list of other friends. Again, I felt better knowing he had support outside of just me. He did call, though. He left a message. I deleted it without ever listening to it. After 20 years of friendship, this is where the story ended. I had said everything I wanted to say, and John wasn't interested in talking about the elephant in the room. After it was all said and done, one final thing stood out to me. This person who had so much trouble with impulse control when it came to respecting every one of my boundaries did stop calling and texting once I ghosted. If only he'd had that level of resolve when it would have mattered, we could have remained friends. But I was only respected after ending the association. And sometimes that's the only way to get someone to respect your boundaries. I remember an advice show that used to be on TV called Love Phones. During one call, a young woman said she was engaged to a man who was doing something that disrespected her. She said she couldn't marry him if it wasn't going to stop. One of the hosts said she needed to make it clear to her fiancé that if he didn't stop, the wedding was off. I nearly fell out of my chair when she replied, I tried that already. Well, what she'd tried was a bluff. What she wanted was a magic spell to change her fiancé, but the host wasn't suggesting she threaten and bluff to change her fiancé. He was telling her to follow through, to let her fiancé know that she would leave if nothing changed, and then to actually end the engagement if the behavior continued. All she could do was alert him that his behavior was a deal-breaker. At that point, her fiancé had to make a decision about whether to keep her or the behavior. If he chooses the behavior, that's her answer. Marrying him means marrying that behavior. If she continues the relationship, she's letting him know she's accepting the behavior. The choice is to be with him and accept the behavior or leave him and be rid of the unacceptable behavior. The choice of him without the behavior was not on the table. He told her that after she alerted him she'd leave and he kept doing it. The fact is, sometimes people aren't going to change. Sometimes they can't change. It's fine to alert someone when they're violating boundaries. In fact, it's a sign you're interested in maintaining an association. If I want an association with someone and I'm doing something that threatens it, I want to know. Sometimes it can feel uncomfortable, but in the end, problems we aren't aware of can't be fixed. Maybe I'll choose the behavior over my friend, but maybe not. The alternative, though, is to continue on in a situation where I'm upsetting someone until it potentially escalates to a much larger problem. I remember a friend once telling me about how patient he is. He said he's very long-suffering, but when he hits his limits, look out, because then he'll really let you have it. I told him that was actually not very good communication style. There's nothing meritorious about not telling someone they're doing something that upsets you. And certainly, the earlier it's addressed, the better. Talking to someone when I'm mildly annoyed is likely to be more productive than talking to them when I'm completely fed up with something they've been doing for a long time. And imagine their reaction to hearing I'm completely fed up with what they're doing when I've never even told them it bothers me. As difficult as it is, the best thing I can do for someone else is try and communicate my boundaries with assertiveness and kindness. The best thing I can do for myself is also to communicate my boundaries. 
The next best thing I can do is pay attention to who does or does not respect them and choose my associations wisely. We can't always avoid situations or people who don't respect us, but when we can, it's often in our best interest to do so. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.